Well, we, um, we've come to a conclusion lately, Amy and I, um, and it's a profound one. It's been really helpful for us. But basically, we've come to the conclusion that you cannot be angry or grumpy when you're in nature. Um, right, I woke up filthy. Like, I was in a really, really grumpy mood. And it was, like, I'm not usually that grumpy, I don't think. But I woke up real grumpy. And then I was matched by the boys. So um, we got five-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, nine-month-old. Our house is chaos. Um, but, like, they matched my level of grump and then raised it a little. And, like, it was, Amy Amy had gone out and it was just a grumpy little household for the, for the start of the day. And anyway, so we applied our applied our theory, get out into nature, and uh, went down to Fagan Park. Who's, like, who's been to Fagan Park lately? Not many. Can I, oh, Evan, how long? Months. Nah, that doesn't count. Um, but thanks for your hand anyway. Um, I encourage you to get down to Fagan Park. Just so, so good. So we got down to Fagan. We go there a fair bit. And as soon as we got there, kids walked out. They were just changed to totally different kids. And I like, I, I took a step out of the car and went, got into nature and was like, oh, I'm good again. And so we, um, we went on this bush walk with one of Eli's little friends and we were walking along, um, pretending we were Bear Grylls. I don't know if you've seen the new TV show. Um, but we were going along pretending we were Bear Grylls and, and Eli's little friend out of nowhere, um, we were, we were being chased by T-Rexes and like pretending we were Bear Grylls and out of nowhere, she just turns and says, she's six years old. Um, she just turns and says, um, like, where did, where did God come from? Who created God? And it's just like, I'm walking along and it's like this really, you know, out there question. I was like, wow. And I went to answer it and she's like, oh, I don't really care anymore and ran off. And, um, you know, but there was this moment where this little six year old girl, like, had this profound thought and you could tell, like, she'd been thinking about it for a bit. But what it did is it just triggered something in me. And, um, and over the last few days, I've just been like fascinated with this idea, like, where did God come from? Um, we're told in scripture that he's the Alpha and the Omega. Um, there never was a time where God was created and there never will be a time where God finishes. He always has been. He always will be. Um, but that's profound, right? Like we, we live in these, like these, these boxes in these lives where we have a start and a finish. Everything we do, everything that we create has a start and a finish and it decays, um, at some point. Some, some people decay better than others. Some things decay better than others, but like we have a start and a finish, right? And that's our whole mindset. And yet God is outside of that. He plays by a completely different set of rules. He was never created. He always has been. He is outside of time. And one of the things that um, it started, like I started thinking about in it, is this idea of death. Um, it's uh, it's not something that we talk about a lot. It's something that our culture wants to like, like not like run away from as much as they can. Um, and it's not something we talk about heaps in the church. It's not like the most lively conversation to bring up at dinner. Um, but this idea that like we have a start and we celebrate those starts, we celebrate when, when people, you know, when, when mums give birth, we celebrate, you know, babies and, and rightfully so, but we, we, we struggle more to talk about this idea of death. And the simple reality is unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, each one of us sitting in this room will die. Um, every one of us has a full stop on our lives that is marked at some point. Um, for some of us, that will be sooner than others. And it got me thinking, like, um, how, what is it? What are the things in our lives that are really important? Um, because for many of us, we will get to the end of our lives and we will know that time is coming. 
for instance, my great uncle, he got really, um, got really sick. I think he was about 85 years old and he was in hospital for months and months. He knew his death was coming. He had time to prepare for it. Um, and he welcomed it. He, he, he encouraged it. Um, and I remember as a kid, as a small kid going and visiting, uh, my great uncle and, um, and he had time. He had time to reflect on his life. He used to talk about a lot during that time about the way he lived, about us growing up and, and that, you know, he had time. Um, for some of us, we won't get time. Death comes like a thief in the night. And for some of us, we will not be, you know, expecting it. Um, we just talked and looked at a group of people who were killed in terrorist attacks. And that is shocking. Um, and it's out of nowhere. They weren't going to church expecting that day that their lives would be taken from them. And last year, um, my cousin's husband was driving home from work. He was 32 years old, uh, father of two kids, uh, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, beautiful Christian man, and he hit a tree on the way home and he passed away. Um, and like for, for many of us, when we get to the end of our lives, we will know it is coming. And for some of us, unfortunately, there will come a time that is far too soon, that will come a lot sooner than what we were expecting. And one of the things I just want to um, talk about tonight, I want us to think about, is to, to look at what are the things that are most important in our lives? What are the things that if we're on our deathbed at the end of our lives, that we're looking back on and go, that is valuable? Because we know we talk about it, but we know that the material things in this life are not going to be the things that we look back on. There's countless famous stories of people sitting at their deathbed and, and they don't look back at their riches. They don't look back at the things that, um, the things that they own, the things that, you know, are at home waiting for them. They look back at family. They look back at relationships. They look back at the way in which they've invested in people. And what I want to encourage us to do is to think about what are the things that are important to us and are we in those sort of rhythms in our life that we will get to the end of our lives, whatever that is, and go, that is the, a life that I'm really proud of. That is a life where I ushered in the kingdom of heaven in a really beautiful, really joyful way and in a really meaningful way. Over the past month, um, and especially the last two weeks, we have looked at, we've looked at, um, at the way in which Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Friday, uh, on Palm Sunday, where he entered Jerusalem willingly knowing what was to come, um, where he had carried all um, authority, where the God of all creation, the God of the universe, willingly chose to walk into Jerusalem knowing that it meant the cross, knowing that he was stepping into victory, but knowing that it meant the cross. We've looked at this idea on, on Good Friday where Jesus would, took the sacrifice for our sins, where he was nailed to a cross and he took the sacrifice for us that we were meant to bear. And then on Sunday, we looked at the idea that Jesus defeated death, that he is risen and that, um, that death had no sting over him. Death had no claim over him and he now lives forever and ever. And we are children of that inheritance. We are, um, that are eternal. Death has no sting over us. And so although there is a point in our lives where we are finite, where we are fragile, that and that can come at any point, if our hope is in Jesus, the beautiful message of the gospel is that we will live forever in his grace, in his mercy, in his protection. And so today, we tonight, we are looking at this simple passage in Matthew. It's found in Matthew 28, verse 19. It's a passage that you will all know off by heart. It's a passage that is really, really famous. It's a passage of youth ministry have built so much of what they do around this verse. And in Matthew 28, verse 19, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. The last few weeks as we've come together, as we've come together to celebrate who Jesus is, we've also come together to celebrate what he's done for us. And what he has done for us is that he has um, revealed a way in which we can have perfect relationship with the creator of all the universe, where the God of the, the stars, the God who created the most intricate parts of our bodies, the God, the creator of this universe, made a way where we are able to have perfect and personal relationship with him. Um, and one of the things that, that he wants from us is he wants our hearts, he wants relationship with us. He wants us to enjoy him. He enjoys us, but he wants us to enjoy him. And when we talk a lot about the vertical relationship with God, what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to enjoy him. But tonight we're looking at this idea of the, the horizontal um, understanding of what our purpose is in this, in this life. Because what has happened is the author of life has written a new word on our hearts um, for this world. And when we accept the author of life and we accept Jesus into our life, he puts something new on our hearts. He gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. All throughout scripture, we are given a new identity as people of God, as followers of him. Really quickly, the identity that we're given that's repeated over and over is that we in this room in 2019 sitting here are described by Jesus, the author of life, as sons and daughters of the Most High. Um, we're described as heirs. We are described as children of God. We're described as people who are spirit-filled. In Romans, we are described as righteous, which means we are right with God. And the, Rome, the, the writer in Romans describes us as righteous 55 times. We're described as royal. We're described as holy. We're described as belonging to God. In the prodigal son, we're described as being embraced by the Father. We are new. We are alive. We are loved. That is who we are. That is our identity as we walk in here tonight. That is what we carry. That is the new heart that we carry. And we carry the author of life wherever we go. And the author of life wants us to carry his heart into the world because he knows that the world is broken. He knows that the things that go on in this world, some of the cultures, some of the norms are not okay. And so when we accepted Jesus into our life, when the Spirit came upon us, all of a sudden, the way in which we view the world, the way in which our heart beats for the people around us changes. We start to carry his heart. We start to think as he thinks. We start to be concerned with the things that he is concerned with. We start to be concerned with the poor and the marginalized, those who are lonely, those who are struggling. All of a sudden, the things that he cares about, the rhythms he cares about, the postures that he cares about, start to become our own. And over the course of our life, we go through this process called sanctification where we become more and more like him, where we our postures start to reflect his, our heart reflects his, the way in which we move, the way in which we think, the way in which we speak reflects our creator. And so we come to a passage like Matthew 28 and we have this new identity, we have this new heart, we have this relationship with the creator. And the creator is saying to us, our God is saying to us, our father is saying to us, this is your purpose. This is what I want you to do. I want you to enjoy relationship with me and I want you to go into all the world and make disciples.
And so to make disciples, we need to know what a disciple actually means when Jesus talks about it in Matthew 28. It's like the final commandment that he gives us in the Gospels. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, a disciple really simply is a follower of Jesus. It's someone who has come to know Jesus, someone who's been baptized, someone who's learned his ways, someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit. The way in which Jesus chose his disciples is is really interesting. And and, uh, understanding Jewish context 2,000 years ago goes a long way in helping us um, to understand discipleship now and going about how we want to go about discipleship in the different ministries that we're a part of, in our workplaces, in our families. Um, Understanding what discipleship means from a Jewish context is really important. And so for Jesus, what he did is um, he went up to his disciples. And if you think about all the accounts, all the times where Jesus goes up to his disciples, um, he he goes up to them and he calls them to follow him. Now, in Jewish times, a rabbi was the teacher um, and the synagogue was the schooling system that the Jewish kids grew up in. If you were a five-year-old Jewish kid, um, you would go off to the synagogue. And from the age of five to around nine to ten, you learnt the Torah, and you learnt the Torah off by heart. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Um, what is the longest thing that you know off by heart? Like, I tried to learn a poem a few years ago. It was like, I really liked this poem. Not heaps into poetry, but I really like this poem. I tried to learn it off by heart. I learned half of it. Like, we know the Australian anthem, like... We know the Lord's Prayer. Like, what is longer than the Australian anthem that you know off by heart? Like, it's probably not that much. And there's a few outliers in this room, probably. But for most of us, like, we struggle to learn a verse. Like, we really do in 2019. And actually, it's pretty bad. But for Jewish kids, five-year-olds to ten-year-olds would learn the Torah off by heart. They would have access to their scriptures once a week. Um, and, and they would go and they'd learn from their rabbi. And the rabbi would teach them the Torah. The education system was pretty competitive. And so by the age of around nine, around 10, um, the best of the best would go on to the, the secondary schooling system that they had. And the rest of them would go off and learn their father's trade. Um, it meant that for an 11 or 10 year old to around 15 years old, um, those kids would, would go into an excelled program and the rabbi would concentrate really heavily on them. And they would go on to learn the entire Old Testament off by heart. They would be able to take different parts, different prophets or whatever, and they'd be able to take it and they'd be able to tell you what it is. Um, and you think about the size of the Old Testament, you think about how ridiculous that is. And a 14-year-old Jewish kid is probably going to be able, like who is in this education system, is probably going to be able to tell you that off by heart. And one of the things that, that would happen is, so there would be this exchange of information that happened from these, from the rabbi to these kids. And quite amazing, the kids would learn the Old Testament off by heart and quite a big deal. But the thing that these kids took from their rabbi was not just this exchange of information. It wasn't just this, we're going to learn this um, text and we're going to learn it off by heart. When um, we're in this, in this process, they, they understood that they would learn everything from their rabbi. There is nothing that their rabbi would do that they wouldn't follow. There's nothing that their rabbi would go off and do that they wouldn't go off and do. Um, if their rabbi went and washed his clothes, his, his students, his disciples would go and follow him and they'd go learn how he washed his clothes, the way in which he did that, the postures he took, the rhythms he took, the baking soda that he used. Um, they would learn everything and they would follow him. Every little detail was important because they understood and they believed that scripture applied to all aspects of life. It applied to how you were a mum and a dad. It applied to how you washed your clothes. It applied to 
the way in which you ate. It applied to how you related with other people. Um, they didn't separate what was, you know, um, religion and then the rest of their lives, which I think is one of the big traps that we can fall into. Everything had this beautiful overlap in their lives and they followed their rabbi wherever they went. It's why when you look at the disciples, we start to understand the process that they went on a little bit more. If you think about the, the disciples that we read about in the New Testament, in the Gospels, all of the disciples, what were they doing? They were fishing. They were off doing their, their father's trade, um, which meant they were probably, and they definitely were, dropouts from this high, from, from their schooling system. These are guys who dropped out because they weren't the best of the best. They weren't the eight-year-olds who succeeded more than anyone else. Um, they were ones who at some stage in the competitive schooling system that they were in um, fell out. And so all of a sudden, Jesus, who was a rabbi, walks up to these guys who are fishing and says, come and follow me. And you ever, have you ever thought about how profound a transaction it is in that moment where these disciples, these guys who are fishermen, sit there and they don't question it. They just drop their nets and off they go to follow Jesus. And it's because they know that Jesus is a great rabbi. He is a teacher that is worth following. And it is a privilege to follow this teacher. And so he, Jesus walks up to the disciples, come and follow me. Like drop your nets, come and follow me. And they drop their nets and they come and they follow Jesus. And he teaches them in all aspects of their lives. He teaches them like um, every single thing that he taught, um, everything that he did, the disciples would follow. And it became an understanding that the disciples would become their rabbi. That was the, the understanding for these kids. And it was the same for the disciples. It's why you have moments where Jesus walks on water and what does Peter do? I can walk on water. Why? Because my rabbi walks on water. If he can do it, he's training me up to do the same. And there was this, um, this, this, this Jewish uh, saying that they had. And I think this sums up discipleship really well for us in 2019. The idea was co to cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi's feet. And so what it was is that the rabbi would lead the way. And whenever um, a rabbi would go from town to town, wherever he walked, his students would be behind him. And as they, as they got to the village and as they, ro as they rocked up, um, the rabbi would file in and the, the students would be covered in the dust of the feet of the rabbi who walked in front of them. And that was seen as a really beautiful thing. That was seen as a great thing. It was a privileged thing because they were covered in the, in the dust of a great teacher who was walking in front of them. And it was this idea that to be covered in the dust of your rabbi's feet was in all aspects of life, you are being discipled, you are being taught in a higher way of life. You are being taught by a great teacher and you are taking on the things that he has learned, the customs that he has learned, the beliefs of Yahweh that he has learned and the things that are normal for him, you are taking them on. And you, the idea would be that you would become greater than your rabbi. This is the picture of discipleship, that we'd be covered in the, in the dust of our, of our rabbi, that we would be covered in the dust of our, our father, of our Jesus. For the disciple, for Jesus, the disciples were his family. They were his brothers. They journeyed with him through everything. They were human. They fought and they slept and they doubted, they betrayed, and yet they laughed and they cared and they followed and they ate. And in the end, most of the disciples died for Jesus. They were there in the Mount Transfiguration, um, or some of them were, and they were there in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there through the highs and through the lows. The disciples were Jesus' family. 
And Jesus had a group of 12. He had a group of 72. He had large groups that followed him. But the, the, the disciples that we hear most about are the 12 that followed and walked with Jesus. And so we're told, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things that I think the traps that we fall into, we hear this word discipleship a lot. Following Jesus, if you go to college, if you um, are in Christian circles for long enough, you'll hear the, the gospel get broken up into two purposes, it's mission and it's discipleship. And we do a great dane, we do a great damage to um, the idea of discipleship and the idea of mission when we separate these two things. They're completely aligned. They're completely the same thing in many ways. And here we're told, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things when we hear the gospel and we hear this idea of discipleship, it's this, it's this rigid idea that we are going to we're going to help someone um, with this ex- exchange of information. So where we're going to take the Bible and we're going to sit down with someone, teach them something about Scripture, and then that's that's it. It's this exchange of information that we've given someone something else, and that's all that it is to all there is to discipleship. Um, and we know, like we know, sitting in this room, because so many of us have been in cultures of discipleship, and so many of you have outwork cultures of discipleship, where we know it is whole of life. We know that it matters. Um, all the details of our lives matters. How we do family, how we talk to one another, how we love one another, um, how we enjoy creation, the normal po- the postures, the rhythms that we carry all matter to God. Discipleship is this really simple idea, but it's profound. It's, it's really simply helping people to see the richness of his creation. It's to help people, help each other to see his character and his intentions, his purposes, his magnificence. It's to help each other to experience his grace and his mercy, to his forgiveness, his love, his joy, his peace. It's to help us to mature and grow. It's to help us to expand our thinking of who he is, to help us to expand our thinking of what heaven is. It's to help us through the highs and the lows of life, through the valleys of life, through the struggles, through the loneliness, through the brokenness. It's to help us to see and to help each other to see beyond ourselves. And into the world we live. C.S. Lewis is um, one of the the guys who has influenced my thinking and my theology and my life more than more than most. And he's a guy that um, that I am very very excited to walk up to in heaven and, and meet him one day and thank him um, because he has blown my mind. And we talk I talk about him all the time. But one of the things that C.S. Lewis it's just beautiful is that C.S. Lewis. Um, was a guy who had incredible creativity. He's a guy who helped me understand the creativity of heaven and the beauty of heaven in a way that pretty much no one else has. Um, but the guy who influenced him was a guy by the name of George MacDonald. And I've been reading more and more of his writings lately. And George MacDonald was a guy who wrote incredibly creatively. Um, he was a like incredible theo- theologian, wrote some beautiful works, but he was a really creative guy. And C.S. Lewis constantly talks about the Wodge MacDonald influenced his thinking in his life. And for all of us, if you look at scripture, we can think about your Elijah's, your, your Elisha's and your Elijah's. You can think about your Paul's and your Timothy's. These people in our lives who have influenced us. Who are the people in our lives who um, have been a father or a mother for us? Who have discipled us in all areas of our lives? Who have inspired us? Who have encouraged us? Who have helped us to see the kingdom in more beautiful and more profound ways? And who are the people in our lives that we have done that for? 
Who are the people that we have intentionally laid our lives down for? Who are the people that we've taken aside and we've invested in their lives? Where we've sat down and had coffees with them or meals with them, where we've talked about the highs and the lows, where we've talked about scripture, where we've led people in the spirit, um, where we've prayed for people, where we've listened to people. Who are the people that we have intentionally been a father or a mother to? One of my favorite quotes, and I don't know who wrote it, I've tried to look it up, but everyone needs a father and everyone needs to be a father. Everyone needs to needs a teacher and everyone needs to be a teacher. And everyone needs a warrior to be a warrior and everyone needs to be in the company of warriors. And I absolutely love this quote, but this idea that we every all every single one of us in this room, we need a father. We need a mother. We need people who are, who are in our lives, who are encouraging us and influencing us in the whole of life gospel, in all of creation, in all of heaven, in what it means to understand his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, what it means to understand our new creation and heaven and our new birth, what it means to go into our workplace and outwork the Great Commission what it means to go into our families and be the best mum or the best dad that we can possibly be through the ups and through the downs, what it means to be the best son or daughter that we are able to be, what it means to be the best grandparent that we can be in this life. We need people in our lives who are our fathers and mothers who can teach us those ways, who make it normal for us to experience God's grace, who show us things that we've never experienced in our lives and push us in ways that we've never been pushed. For me, in this room over there, uh, 12 years ago, yeah, 12 years ago, I had this moment where um, I had so many decisions that I had to make in my life, and I was restless. I didn't know what I was doing, and and I felt this call, like I felt this call to, like some weird calls to go to Bible college made no sense to me at all. I had these weird calls to... Um, to explore ministry. And again, like if you know my story, it like it was, that was not where I was expecting to go. And I had this, this um, moment one night where I, um, I was here. Um, I was, uh, I was dating Amy at the time when I'm married for those who don't know. Um, and I was, I was sitting about in the middle. We all faced this way. And one of the things that I love about this room is that this room is housed like, I don't know how many years, 20 years, 25 years of, of, of people gathering in this room. It's moved around a bit, but Peach, is that around, right? 20 years? Yeah, we'll take that. Yeah, 20 years? Less. 18? Can't, can't hear a 17? 17 years? All right, let's go that. So, but this room has housed for around 20 years, like a community of people called Feast, um, who have come together and worshipped. And there's not many who were here 20 years ago from Feast, right? Um, there's not that many who were here 10 years ago, maybe. Well, this will be the defining factor for, for many of you. So there was a guy I was sitting, I was sitting in this room and I was looking at the front and one of the, the pastors at the time, a guy by, by the name of Jared Myers, who knows Jared? Okay, that's, there you go. They're the people who are here. So Jared was one of the pastors here and he, he was up the front. He, I think he preached that night. And I had this moment as a young guy where I sat there and I went, I have to learn from him. I have to learn from him. And, um, and after the, I didn't, I didn't know him. I don't think I'd ever met him. And after, after the service, I just went up to him and, and went, man, like, I need to hang out with you. I want to get coffee with you. And as an 18 year old, and he just said to me, of course, let's do it. 
And over the next three or four years, Jared influenced my life in, like so, so much. He was a guy, he would come and like where I was um, going to church and where I was working at the time, he would drive over half an hour and just come with his weird bus that he used to drive um, and come and come and spend time with me. He'd have meals with me. Um, he'd listen to me. He'd journey with me. He'd pray with me. One of the most profound moments for me, and I hold this so closely, is I went over to his house in Narrabeen um, and I was an hour early. And I rock up to his house and, um, like I, I was, you know, I was early. I walk past his window and there he is on his couch reading his Bible. And I just, there's this moment for me where like it's easy to have conversations with people and sometimes it's easy maybe to portray something. But he was a guy who I looked at and went, he's living it. He's living it in all areas of his life. And he pushed me so much during that time. One of the things that I'm so thankful for is that I, as an 18-year-old, I've made plenty of decisions in my life that weren't that clever, um, but I've made plenty of good ones too. And that was one of the decisions for me that was a defining one in my entire life. Because what I did is I invited a father, I invited a teacher into my life to journey with me, to inspire me, to push me, to encourage me. And he did that. And he, I owe him so, so much for that season of my life where he did that for me. Everyone needs a father and everyone needs to be a father. Everyone needs a teacher and everyone needs to be a teacher. And it's not this uh, this understanding of when I talk about being a father or being a mother, one of the things I absolutely love about the church is that we have an extended definition of what the family of God is. We have an extended definition of what it means to be brothers and sisters, to what it means to be family. All of us, every single one of us, if we've accepted Jesus into our life, has been adopted into God's kingdom. We have been adopted into God's kingdom, and we are now his heirs. That means we get his inheritance, which is really, really flipping good. We are sons and daughters. We are family. They say blood is thicker than water. We are united by the thickest of blood. And we are united as brothers and sisters. We are united as the most profound family. We have opened up this definition, God has opened up this definition of family for us. And that means that we carry this responsibility for each other. When I talk about being a father or being a mother, it's this, this, this broader definition of what it means to be a father or a mother. It means that in this community, we are called to be fathers and mothers for people um, who are not our immediate blood. For many of us in this room, we haven't grown up in great households. We haven't grown up with a father and mother, a mother who set this brilliant example for us. And what that means is we have more of a responsibility to set really good examples of what it is to be a father and a mother. For many of us in this room, we grew up in households that were brilliant, where our parents showed us what the gospel was in the every, every single day, in the mundane, in the small. Um, and if that's your upbringing, if that's your story, then you have an incredible responsibility to pass that on to others. Because there are plenty of people in this room, there are plenty of people in our youth ministry who come on a Friday night who that is not their norm. That is not their experience. And that is our responsibility. There are plenty of us who have grown up without a mom, plenty of us who have grown up without a father in our household for one reason or another. And one of the things that I love about the church, one of the things I love about the definition of family that God places on us is that we carry each other, we push each other, we inspire each other and we teach each other and, and guide each other through all aspects of life. What it means is that for many of us, we've done life together for a long period of time. And what happens is that we end up covering each other in, in, in his dust. We end up being carried and being covered by each other's dust. 
And it's a much more profound picture than if it's just one or one of us um, teaching or one of us being a father. We are in a room full of fathers and mothers, and we are in a room full of sons and daughters. And so we need to be in postures in our lives where we have fathers and mothers in our lives, spiritual fathers and mothers in our lives. And we need to be in postures and rhythms in our lives where we are fathers and mothers to those to other people. And for many of us, it takes boldness. For many of us, it takes us to initiate something. The most beautiful thing in the world would be like all the time if someone came to us and said, man, I'd love to, I'd love to hang out with you or, you know, I'd love to go and get a coffee with you or I'd love to do this. And sometimes that's how it works. But a lot of the time, it takes us to initiate. You might be an 18-year-old and one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to set yourself up um, with wisdom. Set yourself up with maturity. Set yourself up with someone who is further down the road, someone who's further down the path. If you want someone really far down the path, get poorly sheaves. Um, um, but like, set yourselves up to win. Set yourselves up to be pushed in the gospel. Set yourselves up to have a bigger understanding of his kingdom. Because there are people in this room who have walked along the path, who have walked along the journey for a longer period of time than you and have done so passionately and humbly and boldly and beautifully. And of course, they're going to carry things that you haven't learned yet. And if you're a father or a mother, if you're in a position where, you know, you might be a 17-year-old, you might be a 19-year-old, you might be a 21-year-old, this hasn't got to do with age. But you might need to posture yourself in a way where you sit there and go, hold on, who are the people that I'm overflowing his, his goodness to? Who are the people that I'm covering in the dust of, 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 of our Savior and of our Father? Who are the people that I am doing that for, that I am stepping in the gap for, that I am covering? Who are the people that I'm going up to and going, you know what? Do you want to go, man, get a milkshake and just hang out? I want to listen to your story. I want to listen to what's going on for you. I'd love to just come and hang out and just build a relationship. You might use better language than that. But, but that's the call that we have. That's the call that we have because what we're going to make normal is we're going to make the kingdom of heaven much more normal for those who are younger than us, for those who are our sons and daughters. We're going to give them a bigger understanding of what the kingdom is. There are four things, and I'll finish with these really quickly, that a father and a mother carry. And I absolutely love this. The first is that a father or a mother invests in the next generation. Our mandate is to make normal um, what we have experienced normal for the rest of the world, for those who are broken, those who are lonely. So what we have received from the father, like you think about the story of the prodigal son, what we have received from him, the grace and the mercy that we receive from a father coming running towards us and putting his ring on our finger and his robe on our back and sandals on our feet and a new life, what we have received from him is our new normal. That's what we carry wherever we go. We carry the spirit of God wherever we go, in all its authority, in all its power, in all its beauty. We carry God himself wherever we go. Our normal is really fantastic. It's really profound and it's really beautiful. And our job is to make that normal, normal for the rest of the world. It's not to hold it. It's not to guard it. It's not to keep it tight. It's to express that everywhere that we go. A father and a mother invest in the next generation so that they can see further than we've ever seen. A father and a mother wants um, the next generation to reach higher and to do things that we never thought possible. Isaac Newton said, if I have seen further, it is only by standing on the shoulders of giants. And an old Greek saying um, was, a society grows great when old men 
plant trees whose shade they know they will never they will never sit in. The most profound thing that we will do in our life is to invest in the next generation. The thing that we will never we will never get to our deathbed and look back and go, I wasted my life if we have spent our lives enjoying God and investing in the next generation and discipling the people around us and helping them to have an expanded understanding of God's beauty and his joy and his magnificence. We will never look back and go, I wasted my life. In fact, we will look back and we will laugh. We will laugh with a deep sense of joy because we know that the time that we have been given has been rich and we've used it really, really beautifully. My cousin's, my cousin's husband's wedding that I went to um, last year was profound because he was a man that loved Jesus. He was a man that loved his family. And everything that they talked about at this 32-year-old's funeral was about the way in which he had invested in others. And most of it was like really small things, like really menial everyday things. But it was the way in which he'd invested in other people. It was the way in which he'd invested in his family. A father or mother, someone who carries the heart of a father or mother, invests in the next generation. The heart of a father or mother is someone who loves like the father. One of the things that that I, I never fully got until I was a dad was the way in which you will lay your life down for your kids as soon as they are born. You barely even know them. I remember the moment Eli had been out, like he'd been alive for like five minutes, like, you know, in the world. And I remember looking at this, this little kid and it was a really weird experience, but I remember just this exchange and I went like, I just sat there and went like, I'd give my life for you straight away. I didn't know him. I didn't know the intricacy of his personality, the joy that he carries. I didn't know him. I didn't know the friendship that we'd have. But I, as a dad, I sat there and went, I'd lay my life down for him. And the other aspect of love that we carry as fathers and mothers in a broad definition of that word is that we have a greater vision for our neighbor. We have a greater vision for those around us. We have a greater vision for our kids than we'll ever have for ourselves. We want our kids to succeed. In ways that we have failed, we want our kids to succeed. We want our kids to go further than we've ever been able to go further. We want to give our kids opportunities that we've never been able to give. Now you take that definition of what love is and you apply that to each other and it's the most profound idea of discipleship and community that we'll ever come up with. A father or a mother, the third thing they do is they don't compete. I heard this in a sermon um, um, from a a church called Upper Room um, that I know a lot of you listen to, but it was this really profound thing for me in terms of parenting. A parent doesn't compete with their kids. Of course they don't. Brothers compete with brothers. We ask, you come over to my house for five minutes, you'll see that. It's ridiculous. Brothers compete with brothers, but parents don't compete with their kids. We want them to succeed. We want them to become the best versions of themselves. If the church is full of fathers and mothers who raise up sons and daughters, if the church is full of fathers and mothers who aren't trying to compete with each other, but are trying to raise each other up to be the best virgins that they can be in the kingdom of heaven, that is a beautiful vision of what this place is. That is a deep vision of what family is. And the fourth thing that a father and mother carries for kids, for sons and daughters, is that they are distant in their lives, in every aspect of their lives. We have like the best kids workers going around and like, I'm going to get competitive. We have the best kids workers going around. We have the best teams. And the reason I know that is because they're led by um, a woman in Hannah who carries this heart for kids where she is deeply interested in their lives. Hannah is a spiritual mum to so many little kids. And the thing that I love that Hannah carries, she carries a lot, but the thing that she carries that I love is that she's so interested in their lives. 
kids are ridiculous. Like I'm, I think I'm good. Like I'd be a good high school teacher. I think I'm a terrible primary school teacher. Um, kids like, I love little kids conversations, but they come up with the most ridiculous things and they get fixated on ridiculous things for so, so long. And they can honestly, let's call it for what it is. They can be pretty annoying. Um, Hannah has this rich, beautiful ability to sit with children for hours, like literally hours and enjoy them. And they enjoy her. And there is this beautiful exchange that goes on. And I know she enjoys it. I know it's not a chore for her where she's deeply interested in their lives. She's deeply interested in just playing in the mud. She's deeply interested in just playing little dolls things that girls, I don't know, I don't have any girls. She's, but she's deeply interested. She's taught me so, so much about what it looks like to carry a mother's heart um, in, a, in a community of people. What I want to encourage us in tonight is to be fathers and mothers and to be sons and daughters and to do that really well. Bill Johnson says the subject of raising children really does start with the nature, character and condition of the parents. It does not take perfect parents to raise children, nor do the parents have to come from healthy backgrounds. But it does take the intentional pursuit of the values rooted in what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. The things that we carry, the things that are normal in our life are profound. We carry his aroma. We carry a peace. We carry a light. We have a a normal expression of the kingdom in our lives that we often take for granted. We cooked a meal like a year ago for our neighbors. um, And uh, and they'd never been to church before. We cooked a meal and dropped it over when they were sick. And they couldn't stop talking about it for months. It was the first time anyone had cooked a meal for them. For us, like, we know that is just a normal thing, right? That's a normal, like, thing that goes on in community and in the church. Someone gets sick, someone has a baby, there's 20 meals that get dropped around a lot of the time, like, as an, an overload of meals. We have two people on a door um, bringing meals over on the same night. That's our normal, but that's not the normal for the world in which we live. We carry an aroma. There's things that are our normals that um, that we need to remember are different. We need to remember a radical postures in this life. There is dust that we carry, that we have um, walked over each other in a really profound and really beautiful way. That means that our levels, our normals, our understandings of the kingdom are really profound and really beautiful, and they should be that. And so what I want to do is honor you guys. I want to honor the way in which you have discipled so many people in this community and outside of this community. Um, I want to honor like someone like Paul Sheaves, who I know has been a father to so many of us in this community, who has taken hours, countless hours, and gone about just doing life with us. I want to honor the people who are children's workers, who are youth leaders, who are feast leaders. I want to honor you guys, especially you youth leaders, who have given up. I don't want to say given up. It's the best thing you'll do with your life. Who have um, invested um, in a profound way in young people at a time of their lives where they needed a father and mother. I want to thank you for the way in which you have done that and you have made it normal for them. And I want to thank the people who are not in this room, who have made it normal for so many of us to follow Jesus, um, that have made it normal for us to experience his spirit in ways that we didn't ever think possible, to experience the kingdom in ways we didn't ever think possible. Everyone needs a father and everyone needs to be a father. Everyone needs a mother and everyone needs to be a mother. Um, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and take his his goodness and his joy and his peace. Go and take the things that you know are normal in your life. Go and take the rhythms and the postures that you carry. Go and take the spirit that you carry throughout all the world and make the kingdom of heaven normal. 
Because when we do that, that is when we see revival. And what, when that, that, that starts with the way in which we are able to do that with each other. The way in which we love each other will tell the world who we are. The way in which we disciple each other, the way in which we lay our lives down for each other, the way in which we um, have a greater vision for each other's lives will tell the world who we are and more importantly will tell the world who our Father is. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the Father that makes grace and mercy, joy, peace, forgiveness normal. We want to thank you that you, we come here tonight and we we experience that. We experience what it looks like to have a father that comes running towards us unconditionally. Father, we thank you that you know us each by name. You know our stories, you know our shortcomings, you know our weaknesses. But Father, we want to thank you that you've written a new name over us. Where we had a heart of stone, you've given us a heart of flesh. Father, I want to pray against any doubt, any doubt that any of us carry that we are not in a position to be able to to love others, to disciple others, to lay our lives down for others. Father, I want to pray against any anxiety that people carry. I want to pray for an incredible boldness where we would be people who are able to get out of our seats and just initiate. Initiate the idea of being a father or a mother. Initiate the idea of being a son or a daughter. Father, help us to be people who are bold. Help us to be people who invite others into our lives and into our journeys. Father, I want to pray that the people that we are now would not be who we are in a year and in two years and three years. Father, I pray that we would be more mature. I pray that we would be bolder. I pray that we would be freer that we would have experienced your grace in new ways. And more importantly, Father, I want to pray that we would have outworked that grace in more profound ways than we are right now in the world in which we live. Father, help us to address the loneliness that so many people in our culture carry. Help us to address the brokenness that people are carrying. Father, help us to be an aroma as we go into the, into the lives that you've called us into. Help us to be the light and the darkness. Help us to be the soul of the world. And Father, we thank you most of all for what you've done for us. We thank you that you laid your life down on the cross, that you died and that you rose again, that you defeated death. You asked death death to its face, where is your sting? And it had no answer. And Father, we thank you that that is our inheritance, that we are children who will never pass away. So Father, help us to make investments in this life that are internal. Help us to carry your heart into tomorrow. Help us to carry your eyes and your mind into tomorrow. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. In your name, amen.